Hopefully you all have your handouts and can see that we're going at least to begin uh, to start unpacking what Jesus has to say here in this sixth and final uh, antithesis in which our Lord Jesus contrasts the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees with the true teaching of Scripture. We remember in each case that Jesus isn't really saying anything new in his response to what they're saying, but is simply saying what Scripture already taught, and which they should have at least already known. And uh, that's definitely true in, in this case as well. As you can see on your handout there, I put out to the right part one and part two, because I realized as I looked at all the notes I had, nine or ten pages of notes, I think that was going to be like an hour and a half long sermon or something. <laughs> so I hope to get through half of one sermon today <laughs> is what I'm hoping to do. So hang on to those sheets for next week. And if you lose them, we'll have more. But, but uh, that's why you have a part one and part two out there. Uh, so if, if it's getting uh, to be a long time and I'm halfway through, just look to the right and be encouraged. The end is nigh. <laughs> Uh, of course, I, I don't really feel like I have to say that much to you all. You're such good hearers of the word. Sometimes I think if I preached all day, you'd sit there and listen attentively. I'm so proud of you guys. What a good congregation. Well, let's start by reading the passage, and then, as always, I'll open in prayer. I'm going to read all of verses 43 through 48, which ends our chapter 5. Of course, Jesus didn't break this up into sections and chapters when he gave the sermon, right? We've done that in our Bibles to make it easier to find things, really. Beginning in verse 43 of chapter 5, our Lord says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you, and persecute you. Now, some of you might have a slightly different verse there. We'll get to that later, to the differences that you might have in your translation. Into verse 45, we read, why they should love their enemies, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll hope to get through the first part of verse 44 today. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the reminder this morning that you are our Redeemer, that you have done all that is necessary through your Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. You caused him to be born of the Virgin Mary as one who was both fully God and fully man in one person in such a way that his humanity neither detracted from nor added to his divinity, and his divinity neither detracted from or added to his humanity, but he was perfectly both human 
and divine in one person. What a great mystery. We don't understand it, but we're glad that it's true because as such, he lived a perfectly sinless life on our behalf so that he might die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he rose from the dead, conquering death on our behalf, and he ascended to your right hand where he ever lives to intercede for all of those who put their faith in him. Thank you for the reminder that we have a redeemer, such a redeemer, as the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we look to the words that he has left for us through the inspiration of the prophet Matthew, we pray, Lord, that we would be attentive to his words. Work in our hearts the power of your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we can understand what our Lord Jesus wants us to understand from his words and so that we might apply them to our lives. Convict us, Lord, where we need to be convicted, I pray of sin and grant us renewed faith and repentance and encourage us in all the ways Lord you want to encourage us as a result Lord it is our prayer you'll help us to be more like Christ better witnesses for him in this lost and dying world we ask all these things for our good and for your glory and in the name of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ amen I came up across a, a kind of an interesting account when I was reading a commentary by Kent Hughes, and he recalls this, that in a 1958 issue of Christian Century, Dr. Norman Pittenger published a critique of C.S. Lewis. Among his criticisms was the accusation that Lewis did not care much for the Sermon on the Mount. In Lewis's re- rejoinder to Dr. Pittenger, He responded this way, as to, quote-unquote, caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Now, I disagree pretty strongly with Lewis's not caring much for the Sermon on the Mount because the things that cause him not to care much for it, as he puts it, make me care for it even more. Uh, But his remarks do sort of remind me of something that God asked the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, 29, when he said, Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? In other words, the Sermon on the Mount was doing to C.S. Lewis precisely what it ought to have been doing to him, right? We should appreciate that. I think I could safely say that many of us, if not all of us, have felt as though he or she has been knocked flat by the hammer of God's word a few times, at least through our study of the Sermon on the Mount. I know I've felt that way. Perhaps Jesus' exposing of the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees has maybe left some of us feeling a bit exposed as well. If so, then all I can say is get ready for one of the hardest hits of that hammer today. As we look at Jesus exposing of the pitiful excuse for love that the Jewish leaders were teaching, as well as his own teaching about genuine love in response to that, and in handling the passage, 
I've just kind of outlined it already. We'll examine first the false teaching of the Jewish leaders, and then we'll turn our attention to the true teaching of Jesus, and we'll at least get into the beginning of that, hopefully, the true teaching of Jesus this week. First of all, we look to the false teaching of the Jewish leaders, and it becomes apparent, just as it has with these other five contrasts that Jesus has made in in the previous context, that Jesus has a problem with their teaching and seeks to correct it. And therefore, it is false teaching. He writes this, You have heard that it was said, and throughout these antitheses, these contrasts of Jesus, this refers to, in the context, the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, right? And we're, we're called to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And then we get these six examples of what Jesus is talking about. So when he says, you have heard that it was said, he's reminding people of the teaching they were getting from the scribes and Pharisees in his days. This was typical of what they would have heard, in other words. Then here's the way it was apparently typically put to them. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's expecting that they would have heard that fairly frequently, commonly. Now, Notice, in the way Jesus recounts their teaching, that the scribes and Pharisees had drawn a very distinct line between those considered to be one's neighbors and those considered to be one's enemies. Otherwise, how could you love your neighbor and hate your enemy? They've divided everybody up into two camps, and you're supposed to love one and hate the other. Enemies are the ones you're supposed to hate. The following quote from an ancient Jewish source should help to further clarify the perspective of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day. Here's here's something that is in some ancient Jewish writings. If a Jew sees that a Gentile has fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out. Of course it is written, do not rise up against your neighbor's life, but this man is not your neighbor. So if you see a Gentile drowning, let him drown. See, you're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And apparently Gentiles were, anybody who wasn't Jewish, was basically considered an enemy in that teaching. So one way that the scribes and Pharisees sought to make the scriptural teaching to love one's neighbor easier to follow, remember this is what they've been doing in all their false teaching, They've minimized the demands of the law to make it easier to follow or at least to look like you followed it, right? Uh, Easier to fool other people into thinking you followed it in the way they state it. And that's what they're doing here. They're seeking to make the scriptural teaching to love one's neighbor easier to follow. And the way they did it was to drastically limit who was considered to be a neighbor in the first place. If I can make most of the world my enemies... That makes loving other people a lot easier. (laughs) I've restricted the list of people I I have to love to a pretty small group then. The people it's easier to love. That group. We'll see that Jesus will have none of that. They went even further than this, though, in their distortion of scriptural teaching. In fact, in his statement of the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, I believe Jesus indicated that they both left out and added to the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. So not only did they misdefine or redefine who your neighbor was, as we'll see, they did do that, 
but they deliberately took away something and then deliberately added something. First of all, the scribes and Pharisees left out the words, as yourself, when they said, love your neighbor. Now, we've all grown up learning the two greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength from the Old Testament. And Jesus said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Our children probably know that command and could quote it accurately and would have been able to pick up on the, where's the as yourself words? In order to see this, we need to look first at the primary text where this command is found in the book of Leviticus, and that's Leviticus 19.18, and you should have all these references in your notes there to make it easier for you. Leviticus 19.18 says this, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. He tax on the I am the Lord. Remember who I am when I give you such a difficult command. I'm a person you have to obey. <laughs> With this text in mind, we, we next need to consider the restatement of the same command found later in the same book in Leviticus where it is stated in such a way to expand it, this command, to include even strangers in the land. So they're told to love your neighbor as yourself, but later in the book of Leviticus, the same command is given in a context which makes it clear that neighbor isn't just your friends or your fellow Jews. This is in Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 33. And if a stranger... And that's a person who would have, in this context, almost certainly been a Gentile. If a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. And therefore, you shall not treat him as a Gentile. See, whoever these strangers are, they're not one born among you. They're not Jewish people. They're people coming from other places but you're to treat them as though they were born among you. You're to treat them not as Gentiles, but as Jews. In, the, in your kindness toward them. And he, says what, he says, and you shall love him as yourself. Same command that was given that said you shall love your neighbor as yourself is here saying, even the stranger you shall love as yourself. You shall treat him as though he's your neighbor too, in other words. As though he was born among you and is one of you. Even one of your brethren. And he, he says one of the things they should think about to help this command be easier to fulfill. He says, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And that was a Gentile land in which they would certainly like to have been treated much better than they were after the death of Joseph when they were enslaved. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And then he says again, I am the Lord your God. You know the old commercial. Some of you might remember what E.F. Hutton speaks. Everybody listens. Well, the intent of this is when God speaks, you listen. This is a hard command to obey to love your neighbor. Perhaps even harder command to obey when that neighbor includes people that you like to think of as your enemies, Gentiles. But God says you've got to do it. That's, that's the point of these texts. 
So the scribes and Pharisees ought to have known that the command to love one's neighbor included even Gentiles who lived in their midst. They were supposed to be, after all, experts in the law. And this is an unambiguous command. Except we all know that they were very Clintonian in the way they parsed words to make things not apply to them. We've already seen that throughout these examples in Matthew 5. So their unrestricted naming of the Gentiles as enemies, therefore, weakened the scriptural command in an apparent attempt to make it easier to follow and to hate the people that they really wanted to hate. But in his citation of the Pharisees' teaching, our Lord Jesus focused on the fact that they left out the words, as yourself, when they quoted God's command to love your neighbor. And this omission also had the effect of weakening the command to love others in itself. Not, not only did it set up that they could bring in the enemy part, but uh, most people find it rather easy to love other people to some extent, especially if it benefits them in some way to love that other person. But how many people find it easy to love people as they love themselves? So just leaving those words off made it easier to do. We have to love them, but not that much. Not as much as I love myself, and I love myself more than anything, you know. They were allowed to keep themselves the primary person that they loved. And nobody else could compete with their love for themselves. They just conveniently left that out. When Jesus says, everybody should compete with me, with my love for myself. There's another way of saying love people almost more than yourself, but certainly as much. But the scribes and Pharisees did not stop with this omission. They actually replaced the words as yourself with their own perspective, which leads to the next thing that we see here. The scribes and Pharisees added the words and hate your enemies as though that was a command of God, like love your neighbor was a command. As though God said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Now we've got to figure out who the enemies are, and that's a big list, so we cannot love them. Now, it's uncertain, at least to me, as to how the Jewish leaders arrived at this conclusion that God virtually commanded or commanded that you love your neighbors or, and hate your enemies. But it appears that they had defined one's neighbor in such a strict fashion that it didn't include one's enemies, as we've already seen. And given that one only had to love one's neighbor, and that there was therefore not an actual command to love one's enemy, they apparently just concluded that this amounted to permission or even an obligation to hate one's enemies. So if God said, you only have to love your neighbor, that that doesn't mean I have to love my enemies. And if I don't love them, then I get to hate them. That must have been something like their reasoning. Perhaps. Um, But what about those few Old Testament passages that describe a righteous hatred of others? Could they have gotten this idea from that? Could the scribes and Pharisees have taken such passages as commanding hatred of their enemies? Because there are a few passages in the Old Testament small handful, imprecatory psalms in particular, that speak of where the psalmist says he hates his enemies. 
And it could be that they have those kind of texts in mind. Well, then that amounts to a command to hate your enemies. I mean, if David hated his enemies, then you know, that means I should if I'm a moral person. And that, to them, might amount to a command of God. Not amount to, rather, a command of God. But the Lord Jesus didn't think that, though. If that's what they were thinking, it's not what Jesus thought. Clearly in this passage, Jesus didn't think an imprecatory psalm such as one of those they could have had in mind amounted to a command to love your enemies. Because Jesus is disagreeing with them here in this passage about that. Now, to give you an example of what I mean, a passage that might have been one of their reasons for thinking they ought to hate their enemies, I'll just look at Psalm 139, 19 through 22. There are a number of psalms we could look at that are very similar to this. And in some of those psalms, it actually the psalmist actually says, he's tried to love his enemies and they've just rebuff that love over and over and over again and their hatred for God and therefore he hates them, right? So he tries to love his enemies while at the same time he finds that he hates them and he's wrestling with that, right? Um, Here's what Psalm 139, 19 through 22 says. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you, he's speaking to God here, for they speak against you, God, wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Notice that David was not speaking here of his personal enemies. He wasn't talking about Saul who tried to kill him. or right? Or someone like that. He was speaking of the enemies of God. and of those who hate God and all that he stands for. In fact, he even prays that God will rid the earth of such men. It'll slay the wicked. But notice also that David was not speaking of any of the efforts he had made to call such men to repentance before he arrived at this conclusion. In other words, we're getting a conclusion David has arrived at, but David's not gotten into how he arrived at that conclusion. For all we know, he tried for years to lead some of these people to repentance and tell them the truth and pray for their salvation. Read a lot of the Psalms, you'll discover that David is really wanting everybody to worship God like he does and to be saved. So why does he pray like this? One assumes that this is at the end of some sort of process if you read all the Psalms and you know anything about David, right? To understand such passage, therefore, as a warrant, let alone a command to hate our enemies, to hate people who hate us, would be to wrench it from its context and to misunderstand it. He's talking about people who've made it clear that they despise everything God stands for and are going to fight against it. He wants those people gone because he loves God. And that's very different from just having people that hate you and you wanting them dead. 
Our Lord Jesus apparently saw the issue this something like this, is the way I'm describing it as well, since he clearly saw no warrant in the Old Testament scriptures for the kind of command that the Jewish leaders were pronouncing it. In fact, he's going to say the opposite. And the Old Testament teaches the opposite, that we're supposed to love our enemies. God's enemies, in certain contexts, may be a different thing. At any rate, a general command to hate one's enemies isn't found in the Old Testament. And regardless of how the Jewish teachers may have drawn the conclusion that they drew, that there's a virtual, at least, command in the Old Testament scriptures, which are the scriptures they had, to hate your enemies, Jesus didn't think so because he confronts that notion head on. So I may not be understanding Psalm 139 correctly, but it is certainly in keeping with Jesus' perspective to understand it that way, as we'll see when we begin to look now at the true teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5.44. And we're going to start just by looking really at the beginning of the verse, but I want to read the whole verse first because there's maybe a discrepancy in some of your translations between how your verse reads and how mine reads in the New King James Version, and we need to address that. In Matthew 5.44, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies. The scribes and Pharisees are wrong. You're not supposed to hate your enemies. There it is. You're supposed to love them. Bless those who curse you. Do, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, as I already indicated, before more, looking more closely at this verse, I, I want to address a textual issue that many of you may have noticed as I read it. For example, if you're using a New American Standard version, you'll notice a couple of the phrases here are left out. A couple of the commands are left out. The New American Standard, perhaps the ESV and some others say, but I say to you, love your enemies, and then it jumps to, and pray for those who persecute you. It leaves out, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you. Well, that's because there are some manuscripts that leave them out, right? Um, and the New American Standard follows those manuscripts that leave out, bless those who curse you, and do not, or do good, rather, to those who hate you. Both of those statements are included in the majority of manuscripts, and I believe they should have been left in, in my opinion. But here's the thing. If those aren't in your text, you haven't lost any of the teaching of Jesus. And here's why. Because there's a parallel passage in which Jesus gives this similar command, and he includes these phrases. And that's in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, which says this. Luke 6, 27 and 28 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. It has the same phrases, but in reverse order, as in the New King James of Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you. It flips them around, but they're both there. And then it says, and pray for those who spitefully use you. And so what I'm saying to you is this. Um, if you've got a New King James Version, they haven't added to the teaching of Jesus something that really wasn't there. It was clearly there in a parallel teaching. When he gave the same kind of teaching, he said those very things. And if you've got a New American Standard, it hasn't robbed you of Jesus' teaching because if you go over and read it in Luke, it's still there. Um, I just think it should be in both places <laughs> myself. Um, so I just wanted to handle that. And also to let you know, because I think it should be in both places, in our examination of the teaching of Jesus, we're going to follow the New King James reading, and we're going to handle each of these four things. Um, 
we're going to see that Jesus tells us what the Old Testament really says. That's the way I'm putting it. And then he gives examples of his teaching in action, which we probably won't get to until next week. Then he stresses the importance of being like our Heavenly Father. And then he also stresses the importance then of not being like the heathen. And um, I'm glad he likes this sermon is all I can say. I love it. I, you know, I love having children in our service. Don't you? So don't feel bad on our account. It doesn't disturb me. I just want you all to know that. I think it's wonderful that we have children in the service. This is where they begin to learn to sit in services from the time they're infants and to hear the word of God. And we don't know how much it's going to sink in over the years because they're in here. So praise God when they're in here especially when they're putting an amen at what I'm saying like that. <laughs> it's got good taste, maybe. <laughs> so first of all, let's look at what the first part of this verse, what the Old Testament really says, because as we've been looking at these contrasts, in each case, when Jesus has reacted to the scribes and Pharisees' teaching, what the people have commonly heard said, what he then goes on to say is what you can actually find in the Old Testament that they have left out. And that's true here, too. When he says, but I say to you, love your enemies. We've already seen in looking at Leviticus 19.34 that they were to love even the strangers in the land. That they would might maybe want to regard as enemies. They weren't supposed to do that. Remember, they were supposed to be a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were supposed to be a witness to salvation that could be had through a relationship with God. And hating people around you when they come to visit and sojourn in your land isn't a way to be a good witness to God (laughs) and to share his love with them, right? But let's look at a couple of more examples. Uh, Just one case uh, here from Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. It says this, If you meet your enemy's ox... And it doesn't say here whether it's a Gentile or Jewish enemy, right? If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. Now, if you hate somebody, you're not going to do that. This isn't a hateful thing to do. It's a loving thing to do. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. In other words, I I know that you're going to want to not help because he's your enemy. But you got to help. You can't treat him like an enemy because you're supposed to love even the stranger in the land. And this is an example of that. Next is a, a text we actually considered a couple of weeks ago from Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. It's a loving thing to do. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. A loving thing to do. For so you will heap coals of fire in his head, and the Lord will reward you. And when we thought about that passage a couple of weeks ago, that's, that's a good thing to heap in the passage, to heap coals of fire in their head. Apparently, you're, you're supposed to, through your loving act, action toward your enemy, cause that person to have maybe a guilty conscience, right, and repent. That's the hope, anyway. Clearly, there's this idea that you love even the stranger in the land. 
which would, which would include people that you might historically think of as enemies. And then there's examples of doing good to enemies, as Jesus will say, to, to do good to them in his examples. He's just teaching what the, the scriptures they had should have led them to believe and think. He's not saying anything new. And they should have known that. And they're all, all the more to be judged for having disregarded it. Too much is given, much is required. That's why Jesus was so hard on the scribes and Pharisees. Read passages like Matthew 23, all the woes against the Pharisees, the hypocrites. But then when you saw him talk to somebody like the woman at the well, how tender he was. Well, too much is given, much is required. People who have the scriptures and are experts, quote-unquote, or what those scriptures say, ought to know better. And Jesus doesn't cut them any slack, ever. He's not doing so here. Now, Jesus uses the Greek word agapao in the noun, that's the verb. The noun is agape. Many of us have heard of agape. is the key word in the Bible, Greek word in the New Testament for God's love. And he's using the verbal form here, agapao, in his command to love our enemies, But this word has been misunderstood often amongst evangelicals. So I'm going to take a few moments, which is one of the reasons this sermon got to be so long, (laughs) uh, to deal with that common misunderstanding that is out there, or at least I've run into over the years. It's less common because guys like me have been pointing it out, right, than it used to be. Um, But this misunderstanding is usually due to an overly rigid uh, distinction between at least two different Greek words for love. There are about four which isn't probably as many words as we have for love in, Eng- in English, if you stop and think about all the ways we speak of loving other people. But they had at least four. Commonly three were used. The most common two that were used were phileo, or phile, this uh, is the noun. We get our, our city named Philadelphia, this center of brotherly love, right? From the Greek words for brother and love. Um, and so phileo and agapao are two, the two main verbs in the New Testament used for love. And some scholars draw, especially older scholars, draw a strong distinction between the two of them as though they're like two really different kinds of love. And agapao or agape is the God sort of kind of love. And phileo or phile is this uh, human brotherly sort of love. That's the common sort of distinction. You run into problems with that in the New Testament when you see Jesus using both terms for his love for God the Father, for example, <laughs> as though they're equivalents. They're, they're, in other words, there isn't this strong distinction actually in the New Testament usages of these terms that some scholars want to read into them. I'll give you one example. Uh, here's a description from an older evangelical website, which maybe have taken down now. In answer to the question, what is love? And it, and it gives the two, these two Greek terms. Phileo, it says, means to have an affection, sentiment, passion, or feeling for someone. It is a fondness based in the heart. What the Greeks meant by phileo love is what we normally think of by the words brotherly love, meaning today. And then they, then they contrast that with agape or agapao. They say that means to choose to seek the best for others. As if People who love each other with a brotherly love would never think to do that. But anyway, uh, it means to choose to seek the best for others. This love is based in the mind. Notice 
Phileo is in the heart. This love's in the mind. Who, who thinks this stuff up? There's not a passage of scripture that makes this kind of distinction. Uh, people make these distinctions with no basis, I believe. They go on to say, we can choose to show agape love by actively thinking about and deciding how to act toward other people. Agape is the word used in, when the Bible talks about Christian love for one another. Agape love is talking about our behavior towards others, not our feelings. So here's the big distinction. And they say it this way. Phileo love is about feelings. Agape love is about how we act toward others. The implication, whether we feel it or not. Now, based on such ideas, when referring to agapao, the emphasis is often placed upon an act of the will rather than heartfelt affection for others. As though Jesus was saying here, I don't, I don't expect you to really feel love for your enemies at all, but you've got to act like you love them. As though that's what Jesus is saying. Anybody ever think Jesus loved people like that? <laughs> when you read the New Testament, does that look like the way Jesus ever loved anybody? Uh, the implication of this distinction they've made is that it doesn't really matter so much if we feel love for others. It's just important whether we choose to do loving things through others or that we choose to show love through our actions, even if we don't really love them. I would just say that although it is certainly true that we should choose to love others and treat them with love, even if we don't feel like it, that is definitely true. I think a careful study of these two terms in Scripture would easily refute the notion that feeling love for others is not so important. When Jesus used phileo to describe his love for the Father, he felt love for him, but when he used agapo, agape or agapao to describe his love for the Father, he didn't really feel love for him. He was just choosing to love him. Really? That's just not, just to think of it that way just shows how nonsensical it is. These two words are fairly synonymous in their New Testament usage. Uh, we don't have time to do uh, that kind of study this morning. <laughs> uh, I'll just give a couple of citations from recent scholarship on the matter, hoping that that will suffice. I'm not the only one who thinks this. For example, as D.A. Carson correctly observes, to love one's enemies, though it must result in doing them good and praying for them, cannot justly be restricted to activities devoid of any concern, sentiment, or emotion. Like the English word to love, akapao ranges widely from debased and selfish actions to generous, warm, costly self-sacrifice for another's good. There is no reason to think the verb here in Matthew does not include emotion as well as action. I agree. In addition, the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, that's a mouthful, defines agapao this way, to have a warm regard for an interest in another, to cherish, have affection for, love. And by the way, there's at least three ways we speak of love in English, cherish, have affection for, and also love. Um, 
And then it also says to practice or express love, to prove one's love, basically through your actions. I would just say this, again, if if we struggle to feel love for others as we should, and that's going to be especially true when it comes to people who hate us and that we might regard as our enemies, it's going to be hard to feel loving toward those people. And when we struggle to feel love for them, we must certainly begin by actively choosing to love them and by putting that love into action. And as Jesus will go on to say, praying for them, which is a good way to increase love for other people in our hearts. But we shouldn't settle for that. We shouldn't settle for such a poor excuse for real tender-hearted love. Well, I'll do a loving thing because I have to, because that's the loving thing to do, even though I don't feel love for them. No, what we should be saying is, Lord, I will do the loving thing and pray, pray, pray that you'll help me really love them when I do it. Something's wrong in my heart if I can't love my enemies like you loved me when I was your enemy and you gave your son for me. I got to love people like that. And if there's no feeling to love others like that, I've lost sight of how sinful I am, Then I was only saved by grace, that I have undeserved love from God. I've forgotten that. And I need you, Lord, to change my heart and help me to actually love people like I should. Not settle for some pitiful excuse that a Pharisee might have come up with. I want to have heartfelt love for other people and I don't want to settle for anything else because I want to be like my heavenly father. I want to be like Jesus and I am far short of it. I got to tell you, it's hard for me to pray for some people with love in my heart. It's much easier to say, slay the wicked Lord. (laughs) And maybe there's a time to pray that. Maybe there's a time to pray that. I wasn't going to include this. It's actually in my footnotes. But I'll I'll finish with it because I found it helpful. And I think it's probably the most balanced perspective biblically I, I might have read thus far. It comes from John Stott. It's rather lengthy, but I think it will do you good as it did me good. We all need teachers, and he was one of mine on this. He writes, the truth is that evil men should be the object simultaneously of our love and of our hatred, as they are simultaneously the objects of God's, although his hatred is expressed as wrath. To love them is ardently to desire that they will repent and believe and so be saved. To hate them is to desire with equal ardor that, if they stubbornly refuse to repent and believe, they will incur God's judgment. Have you never prayed for the salvation of wicked men, for example, who blaspheme God or who exploit their fellow humans for profit as if they were animals, and then gone on to pray that if they refuse God's salvation, then God's judgment will fall upon them? I have, he writes, and I have too, for abortionists, for example. Lord, if they won't be saved, please rid the earth of them. They're slaughtering millions of unborn children, and that's got to stop. 
I've prayed this way before. I want them to be saved. That's the answer I want. But if that's not going to happen, I want to save those children they're killing. You see? And I want them gone if that's what it takes. I understand what he's saying here. Maybe you do too. Maybe you've prayed these kinds of things yourself. David prayed this kind of prayer, remember? That was probably his mindset. Lord, I'm writing these psalms. I'm sharing the faith with them. I'm winning everybody in the world, including all the Gentiles who hate you, to become worshipers of you, to be saved. And then he says in another psalm, there are certain people out there that are just such enemies of yours. Take them out, Lord. How could somebody pray both kinds of things, want both kinds of things? I think John Stott might be onto the right answer to that question. Biblically. It takes all the biblical evidence into account. He goes on to write, So there is such a thing as perfect hatred, just as there is such a thing as righteous anger. But it is a hatred for God's enemies, not our enemies. He was paying attention to passages like Psalm 139, wasn't he? It is entirely free of all spite, rancor, and vindictiveness, and is fired only by love for God's honor and glory. I got to tell you, I don't think I'm at a point yet where I could hate an enemy of God like I'm supposed to because I don't think I'm driven enough by such a singular desire for his glory. When I feel like I can love God with every fiber of my being and only care about his glory in praying such prayers like those, I'll feel much more comfortable praying them. David felt that way by the grace of God. I'm still learning to feel that way because I don't love God enough to pray prayers like that. At least not very often. And I say that to my own shame. I'm learning to love him more every day. I know I have a sincere and deep love for him, but I also know it falls far short of what it ought to be. Because there's too many other things competing for it on any given day that shouldn't be. You ever feel like that? If the Pharisees felt more like that, They wouldn't flippantly say the things they were saying, right? I hope this has been helpful to you. I'm going to stop there. We'll get into the rest of this next week. Lord, I do thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you are such a gracious God. I'm reminded of our departed brother Paul saying that He hadn't attained perfection in this life. He hadn't attained ultimate Christian maturity in this life, that he looked to the resurrection as the time that would happen. And he said, as many of us as are mature, we'll have that same mindset that we never achieve perfect righteousness in this life, and therefore we never achieve a perfect love for you in this life. That will happen when we are glorified. That will happen spiritually when we die. And no longer have to battle sin. Lord, we long for that day. And in the meantime, we just keep praying, help us love as you love. Help us to love even our enemies. Help us to really love them from our hearts. 
and to really deeply desire what's best for them, even as they might mistreat us. Help us not to settle for anything less, Lord, I pray. Help us not to be like the scribes and Pharisees, but to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Help us to have a love for you and others that exceeds the pitiful excuse for love that they were willing to accept for both you and others. Forgive us for all the ways, I pray, Lord, where we fail in this and renew in our hearts today a zeal to have godly love for everyone. And maybe, as we learn that, we'll learn what that hatred was that David was talking about. And we'll understand it better. But until then, help us focus on on loving like we should. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet come to know you, it's our prayer that you would fill them with your love. That you would show them in their hearts through the power of your spirit that you gave your son Jesus Christ on the cross for them because you love them and you want them to know you. You want them to know your love and learn the joy of loving you in return. To learn what it means that we love you because you first loved us. To learn what that kind of loving relationship is. To learn what it's like to be forgiven and have the free gift of salvation through faith in Christ. Lord, we'll give you all the glory for what you do and answer these prayers. In the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I hope that's been helpful to you. As always, thank you for your kind attention.